Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name, as ever, is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, tweeting about it, sending um, texts to your friends late at night saying, have you checked out the podcast? We really appreciate all of that. Um, if you'd like to contact us on the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can tweet us, we're at News Talk Science. We'd love to get your opinions and thoughts and questions and we get to all of those at the end of the podcast. So whatever you have to say, please do, um, using the aforementioned communications methods. Right, <laughs> coming up on this week's podcast, we're going to be uh, talking about an end to animal trials, uh, a, a, a very brave and ambitious quest to create mini human clones on a chip. They're called humans on a chip. And the idea is that we could create um, little organs, on, on. it sounds so crazy, little organs on a chip that you could test drugs on to see if they're safe rather than testing them on animals. But even better, you could test them on, on specifically a mini clone of you. This sounds so mad. Wait for the interview. You're going to enjoy it. Dane Goble from the Methuselah Foundation will be telling us all about it. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from DCU's School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Kelleher. You're both very welcome. Our first story. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I am Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, why the heart is such a pain in the neck to treat and humans on chips, the future of drug trials. You can email us, science at newstalk.com. Find us on Twitter, we're at News Talk Science or you can text us for 30 cent, 5 through 106. All of those comments go into the podcast. Check it out in the Go Loud app. Before we get into uh, the, the main interviews, uh, joining us to look through the week's science news is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from DCU's School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Kelleher. You're both very welcome. Ruth, our first story uh, has to do with PFAs. This is something you warned me about years ago and I, I kind of said, mm-hmm, that's interesting and then I just disposed of this information. But, yeah, and I think a lot of people have put it to the back of their mind. We yeah. might have heard of it. We might have seen the movie Dark Water, but PFAs are per or polyfluoro alkyl substances and they're a group of man-made chemicals. There's thousands of them and they were developed in the 1950s because they have really interesting properties like things don't stick to them. So they're very good for like frying pans or waterproof clothing and they're also they're very good at resisting heat so they're used in things like fire, retar- fire retardant foam. Um, but of course over the last number of decades we have realised that some of these compounds appear to be linked to different types of cancer and, and ill effects in human health and of course the really tricky thing about them is they're basically long chains of carbon with fluorine atoms attached and the chemical bonds are incredibly strong. So these chemicals are not going anywhere. They're called forever chemicals. Mm. And there's been a load of research over the last couple of months that's come out building on what we kind of already knew, but getting into the detail of it. So we know now that pretty much all of us have PFAs in us. A study a couple of months ago said rainwater everywhere on Earth have PFAs in it. Uh-huh. Um, and, and there's a new study now out this week which is looking at how probably PFAs are passing from, from mothers into children. Uh, so this is the study that's You just are zero crack on this programme. Can I just tell you, every time you come on this programme, it's zero crack. It's, I mean, it's very rarely, you know, we found a new species of panda. 
In fact, I don't think you've ever brought that story to okay. us. Okay, that's a challenge. I'm going to now look for one. The next time I'm on, it's going to be an Sorry. upbeat story. I don't mean to, that was a real don't look up moment, wasn't it? I was real like, don't tell me about the bad stuff. Tell me about pandas. Sorry. Well, this is good because at least we're finding out what's happening. Yeah. And I should say, actually, the level of PFAs in people is starting to go down as we understand this better and we're filtering it out of water and we're coming up with new technologies to get rid of them. So science will, will still come up with the solutions. But this study from Denmark essentially looked at a large group of women who donated blood during their pregnancy and it's following up on their sons, nearly 900 of their sons, young men who very kindly offered to donate semen to this project. And what the researchers were able to do would be they looked for 15 different compounds in the women's blood and they looked at did a semen analysis for all of their sons. And they found that women, particularly those who had two or more of these PFASs circulating their blood, their sons had lower sperm counts and, and lower quality sperm, both of which are linked to infertility. And this is particularly <sighs> interesting because we're kind of seeing fertility rates dropping. Yeah. We know we're seeing cancer rates going up in the under 50s and I know this isn't cheery at all but when you think about those planetary boundaries on pollution the science certainly seems to be reinforcing us that we are just making our world poisonous for ourselves. So what do we do? What, What is it that we need to avoid? Well, I mean, obviously this stuff is in nonstick pans and clothing. I mean, I would say you can still, I mean, essentially two of these compounds were banned, but there's thousands of others and the companies just replaced the ones that were banned with other ones, which are probably equally dangerous, but the regulators haven't caught up. I would say look for silicon nonstick or, you know, other types of nonstick. If you see a P in three other letters, I wouldn't buy it in my pan. But I think the other thing is we have to look at the science. Scientists are coming up with ways to break down these chemicals safely, but Mm. it's in the early stages. So we just need to keep investing in that research yeah, so we can get rid of them. And even still, like, you know, you're not going to be able to do that in living people. I mean, you might be able to do it at a water source or but like you can't do it in all water or all of the environment. So, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, and look, a we tricky, need to, sticky yeah, problem. We need to think about regulation. You cannot just dump stuff out into the environment and expect no consequences. And if you work for a company, maybe ask yourself, should I speak up if you think that this might be happening? I mean, it's surprising how few whistleblowers you really get in the industrial plants who say, hang on a second, this is going and this shouldn't happen. I mean, really, have a look in the mirror if you work at one of these companies and you know that this sort of thing is going on. Um, Susan, our second story uh, has to do with Wax worm saliva. Now, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I have a story about a worm. So, I mean, it's pretty cheery. But um, it's actually very similar to what Ruth was saying because it's about chemical breakdown of bonds as well. So, um, scientists have discovered that the saliva of a worm can rapidly degrade plastic bags. So, just as Ruth was saying about scientists finding solutions to problems, here's one that um, people have come across. So, the larvae... The saliva of a worm. Yeah, so worms la- have saliva. Yeah, so they, I mean, they chew, right? So, this is like, these worms are found in hives and they, the worms themselves, have been seen to sort of chew on plastic but people didn't really know what was happening to it and they knew it was degrading but they didn't know how it was degrading were they digesting it were they spitting it out and this team from Spain published findings this week in Nature Communications um, that basically put the mystery of this process down to two specific enzymes in the saliva of these worms and those two enzymes do all the hard work Um, and instead of having to rely on the worm to break down plastic so the plastic that they break down is polyethylene which is 30% of all plastic produced is polyethylene and much like Ruth was saying like this is one of these chemicals that has really really strong carbon-carbon bonds that can't be broken down Um, polyethylene can be recycled we've all 
we all know it is basically plastic bags and bottles and we can recycle those. But the recycling at the moment really just brings about sort of lower quality um, plastics. You're still making plastic from plastic and that has an uh, application. But this process, because it goes in and actually cuts up the bonds themselves, you end up making much smaller fragments of chemicals that are far more useful and then they can be used to go on and make loads of different things. So this chemical recycling of plastics is where we need to go and the fact that we don't have to rely on living worms to do it, but the fact that we we can rely on an enzyme that could be synthesised and it could be produced and it can be managed in an industrial process I was is a really good next step. I, I was wondering how we would be extracting the enzyme from worms to get yes. constantly. So you need, we need more worms. Spit. <laughs> yeah, the chemical biologists will 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 synthesize that. No problem. But speaking about plastic, um, your uh, school uh, has come up with a really cool idea um, to use waste from beer and food. Tell me about it. Yeah, so our faculty in DCU, there's a number of schools involved. So um, Dr. Jennifer Gochran, who's in School of Physical Sciences, myself, Dr. Brian Freeland, who's in Biotechnology, and Keith Rochford, who's in School of Nursing, and then um, Sam Fahey, who's in our Sustainabilities Department in DCU. We have all come together and we've um, been working on this problem of, well, it's twofold. First of all, there's a load of waste that beer and um basically distilleries produce that's really difficult for them to get rid of and it's quite low value but we've been using it as a feedstock to feed bacteria and then produce lactic acid which is a starting material for making biopolymers and we're looking to use that biopolymer um, to print labware so conical flasks and materials that um, and like petri dishes that are used in labs all around the world believe it or not there's um, 5 million tonnes of plastic waste produced in labs across the world every year so being able to produce um, biopolymers that are like basically degradable and can be put back in as compost onto the fields where we you know materials are grown is is a big benefit so you're taking waste from breweries and distilleries using it to make plastics that can then make lab products like flasks and and yes, petri and then looking at the decomposition of that and composting of that material, it composts in 60 days and then we make compost from it. So we've got sort of at each stage of this project, there's like I'm a chemist and then Jen is a physicist, materials chemist, Brian is a bioprocess engineer, Keith is a cell biologist and Sam is an expert in sustainability. So we have every single element of the project has sort of an expert well, on it and we're working on it. You need someone to do some rap. <laughs> we need, yeah, we need an artist, an artiste to, to do something for us. But it's, it's a really exciting project and it's supported by SFI, so we're thrilled. Great. Um, well, uh, our third story is uh, an interesting one, Ruth. It's about eye scanning, being able to predict heart disease. Now, most people would imagine that the heart and the uh, the eyes are not very well connected. What is this story? Well, so, so, well, you would think that, but actually this is about the broader cardiovascular system. And in fact, the retina, the back of your eye, is the only place in the human body you can look at your vasculature, your veins and your arteries without... In look going inside, cutting you open. So actually looking through your pupil to the back of your eye, there's loads of arteries and veins there. So, so, so it's actually been a really intuitive place for scientists to look. But of course, the challenge has been it's a very complex system of veins and the expertise and technology that you need to go in, look and actually decide, is this telling you anything about the health of your overall cardiovascular system just hasn't been there. But this is research that was just published in the British Journal of Ophthalmology by researchers in London. And what they've done is they've developed a fully automated AI tool to look at the back of someone's retina and to do an analysis of 
all of the features of the arteries and veins there, how thin, how thick they are, how bendy they are and how healthy they look. And they incorporate that information with other risk factors for cardiovascular disease like smoking, weight, medication. And they've come up with a really, really accurate predictive model uh, to see, are you likely to have a stroke, uh, to have an unhealthy heart? Are you likely to have a heart attack? Uh, so it's, it's a 60 second test that can really give a very high prediction score for these health outcomes. What, what, what sort of window is the, is the prediction? Is it like you will have a heart attack in the next six months or you will, you're, you're a high, high risk person for a heart attack in the next six months? Exactly that. It gives you a, a risk profile so you're high risk and, and obviously that would be more immediate or low risk but I mean it, it's kind of solved this problem that the amount of expertise and cost, this is a very obvious test on a sort of theoretical level but the technology just hasn't been there. Right. Uh, so this, this you know, they, they talk about maybe even having an on-street clinic where in 60 seconds people could be walking in having their eyes scanned by a robot and getting a result. Now obviously that's not how we do medicine, that's not how you get results about your health. It's how we should do medicine. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a question, how do you want to get that in? What are you going to do with that information? You know, how are we going to put the interventions Have in? Have a heart attack. Well, hopefully not. Yeah. Ideally, get put on some sort of preventative path to stop you having a heart attack. But I mean, I think diagnostics is a place and complex image diagnostics is a really exciting place for AI because it's a place where you need really amazing human expertise to be good at it. And, and we obviously don't have that many people who can do it. Well, um, we're going to hear how difficult it is to repair the human heart with Shan Harding in a few minutes' time. So um, this is a good, uh, a good idea to see if we can ward off uh, permanent damage because it is a very, um, it's not a delicate, but it's a very difficult thing to fix a broken heart. Um, our final story, Susan, has to do with the moon. Yeah, um, and something I had never um, really considered, actually, which is where it came from. Um, and so the... Most theories are based on the fact that a, a large Mars-sized object would collide with the, with the Earth billions of years ago and that debris then from that collision would have formed the, the moon. But this is largely based on the fact that moon rock is very similar to Earth rock and that's the only way that they scientists hypothesized. How else did it get there? How else did it get there, exactly. But NASA, uh, scientists now at NASA Ames in California have completed the most accurate simulations of this collision. So um, they believe now instead of it happening over many, many years, the formation of the moon happened in hours. So mm. if you think back to billions of years ago, the Earth was very you know, molten and then this um, this large body, it's called uh, Thea, it came in and crashed and collided into the Earth and they became one. But as it crashed into the Earth, it's sort of like, I think of it like a ribbon, a ribbon of molten material came out from the earth and started spinning around a bit like a ribbon dancer with, you know, a ribbon around them. And the moon then came from that. And so this molten gas, basically, as a rock rather, as it came across, it sort of flung it out into orbit where it then stayed um, and landed there and started to form the, like the, a coron- the rock. Like a coronal ejection. Yeah, just exactly. And it kind of came out. But it, the, the way, the, the reason the simulation is really important is because they're, they're sort of the, the most accurate representation of like all the things that they know about like the orbit and the density of the moon and the size of the moon. And again, as the material, like it has to have come from the Earth. And this is what they now propose to be the most likely way that the moon formed, which is, you know, it just gives us a better understanding of our celestial bodies and understanding of the Earth as well and its evolution. Yeah, I reckon those guys are super good at maths, is my guess. <laughs> Like I always, when I go, that sounds like a difficult mathematical problem. But it does seem to me that every two years we get a new theory of how the moon comes out. So looking forward to 2024. (laughs) Um, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Dr. Susan Keller from DCU. Thanks very much for joining us. All right. On the way, humans on a chip and the future of drugs. 
This is Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae, where you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. I'm at the Longevity Summit in Dublin, and our next guest is Dane Goble. He's from the Methuselah Foundation, who work on various different projects. But the one that I really want to uh, start off talking to you about, Dane, is this idea of putting a human on a chip. So explain maybe a little bit about the Methuselah Foundation first, and then uh, we might talk about this idea of the the human on a chip. Okay, so um, Methuselah Foundation, uh, we've been around for about 20 years or so. We were one of the first organizations uh, to kind of kickstart this, what some people call like a longevity movement. This is very, very, very early stage. Now it's a fairly mainstream thing. People are talking about it in a way that's it's not shocking like it used to be frankly um so when it comes to the humans on a chip that's a part of actually a fairly long-running program it's kind of our tissue engineering program so we have a few main areas that we kind of use in terms of our strategies that we deploy uh, in order to have access to cutting edge research i guess you could say so you know we give grants we do you know seed investments um, but we also do innovation challenges so this is a, a way for like the general public but of course subject matter experts to come and participate in open challenges a few years back we worked with nasa on what was called the vascular tissue challenge which was about developing tissues uh, with proper microvascularization. We did that uh, because we wanted to set the stage for whole organ uh, engineering. Now that's a very, very difficult thing to do. So uh, we started and then we decided to kick the can down a l- the road a little bit. What do, you, what do you mean by that whole organ engineering? What, what was the oh, idea? Yeah, the idea is to, okay, so a lot of people know that if, an or- if one of your organs goes bad, you have to go wait in line for somebody else to give you their organ or die, uh, and then you can get their organ, but still you're stuck with a lifetime of immunosuppressant drugs. It's uh, not a silver bullet. It's, in fact, it's quite ugly and grotesque. So what we want to do is to be able to engineer whole organs from an individual's stem cells. So you take a, a sample of the individual, you take those cells back to pluripotency, which is basically where they can differentiate into whatever you might want. I call them blank Scrabble yeah. pieces. No one ever took that up. I think it's a great example, a blank Scrabble piece. Exactly. It's like a joker, right? Uh, so you take it back to pluripotency, and then you can turn it into essentially whatever you need to. Um, but in order to actually d- developing a whole organ is very, 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 very difficult. And so in the process of developing uh, that challenge, we realized that we needed to focus on the key rate limiters first. And one of those is microvasculature. Uh, and so we partnered up with NASA um, because they're concerned about long duration missions. Uh, for one thing, they need to be able to make sure that astronauts can survive for a very, very, very long time, in particular when when you might want to settle you know, on the moon or on Mars. You're going to be there for a long time and you need to be able to institute do all of, of this stuff, right? So, uh, so we worked with them on this microvasculature challenge, which was actually won just last year. Uh, two teams uh, from Wake Forest were actually going to be sending to the ISS to test their experiments uh, in, in microgravity. So one of the problems with vascularization or, or blood vessels is that they are very, very delicate, very, very strong at the same time and very small. And, and, and of course, blood vessels are extremely important in the health of uh, an organ. And 3D printing uh, took a look at this and sort of backed away for a number of years because it's so uh, difficult to reproduce blood vessels. But you have managed to find a way to um, to figure out this blood vessel problem 
and that was the Wake Forest. That was the challenge that Wake Forest won. Can you tell me what what the challenge was? What were you trying to get them to do, and and why that's important to the International Space Station? Sure. So it's it was really about creating a very very small piece of metabolically legitimate tissue that you could then test drugs on that would respond the way that it's supposed to. So it's a tiny little basically a tiny organoid. Now, the difference between that uh, and what we're trying to do now is a, a human on a chip is very different than, say, like a, a liver organoid on a chip. What you want to do is you want to have, basically, you're trying to take everything that really means something about a human when it comes to uh, patient trials for drug testing and squeeze it onto a tiny little chip uh, so that you can you can test a drug and you really understand holistically what what's going to happen with the whole body. Wow. So... Um... How on earth do you do that? <laughs> well, I suppose there's a lot of different ways of doing it. The most the most important thing I think to think about in, is really what the outcome is, what it enables you to do. Right now, you know, it, it costs an insane amount of money and takes a huge amount of time to actually take a drug to market. And that's because they're using animal models to test things on. You don't know exactly what's going to happen until you try it in a human, um, but you can't at this point. Um, so the hope is to be able to have these, you know, humans on a chip. You can deploy them like at scale, really. You can make it so that it's you know fully representative of every demographic you could possibly think of. Um, and you're also able to do it where it's extremely personalized. So let's say there's some sort of strange space virus that shows up and you have five people in a tin can who suddenly get it and you need to figure out how to actually uh, engineer a drug for them. Well, if you are able to actually have a chip that literally represents that specific individual, then you can create bespoke personalized medicine for them. Wow. Uh, so so the idea is that on, on a chip, you have sort of 3D tissue um, samples, like almost like biopsies on a, on a chip that, are, that, that can somehow represent an individual's body. And then you test drugs to see what, what will happen with those. I mean, isn't that extraordinarily difficult? Because aren't our organs very complex? Yes, it's extremely difficult and complex, and I'm grateful that I'm not doing it myself. The, the thing that Methuselah does is we, we try to set up the circumstances to attract, you know, the, the brightest in their field and even, you know, just folks that you would never expect uh, to show up. That's one of the, uh, the historical advantages to doing open innovation challenges. So, you know, these have been running now for, for hundreds of years, and they are there to tackle the biggest problems that really you you need to take a total shotgun kind of approach. You can't say you do it necessarily. You need to be able to put it out to the world and, and, and allow anybody to participate. For example, the Food Preservation Prize in uh, the early 1800s was a result of the French Revolution. This was created by the directorate, which right after the French Revolution, they had a lot of problems with food. And they were like, we could really use a lot more of it. And so uh, this fellow, Nicolas Appert, who had a confectionery, um, came up with a way of, uh, you know, hermetically sealing uh, boiling food and then hermetically sealing in bottles, right? This is the precursor to tin cans, uh, which was deployed um, by just about everybody who wanted to leave home, right? So that uh, that innovation enabled massive worldwide exploration in a way that couldn't really be done before in terms of nutritional uh, quality. And that in turn enabled 
the ice trade. And the global ice trade is what enabled food preservation in the 1800s. Now, the effect of that was a massive increase uh, in life life expectancy and intelligence uh, on average in the human race. It was like a profound effect that not a lot of people talk about. But that was a result of an open innovation challenge from a fresh government of people with lots of guillotines who couldn't figure out uh, how to keep their people fed. But they were good at like destroying monarchies. <laughs> So um, this is actually how the Methuselah Foundation began, right? That with the Methuselah Mouse Prize. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings of your organization, the, the first challenge that you had? Yeah, the first challenge was was kind of a, a fun structure. I mean, it it was we really tried to kind of um, you know cut the Gordian knot a little bit. So when you're dealing with a really really challenging problem that has you know there's a huge amount of nobody really knows how to solve it. You know that there's not going to be like a silver bullet. It's a million different things. Aging is one in particular where it's like uh, aging or the, the negative effects of aging are just like the accretion of a thousand things that can go wrong with you. And especially in the early stages of, you know, the longevity movement, there, I mean, nobody could really agree on the right way to approach it. And so it's like, okay, well, maybe it doesn't matter at this stage. What you really need to see is, okay, well, can you actually just extend the lifespan of a mouse? That's 100% measurable, and it allows for you to test a number of different interventions, right? So it's just really a way of saying, okay, cool. Can you do it? Does it work? That's simple. So what we had was a, uh, a large prize pot. It was about a million dollars or so. Um, and the way that it was is you had the record for the longest-lived mice, and if you doubled the lifespan of that mouse through some sort of intervention, you would get half the prize pot. So it was meant to be kind of a perpetually extending kind of prize. So it's actually something that at this point we we actually don't run anymore because the mice are living too long for it to really make any sense. There's no longer a one-to-one -one connection. And so uh, now we're going to be working on this new challenge, which is the human on the chip one. And it's a way of actually completely removing animals or non-human animals from the equation and making sure that the drug discovery and patient trials happens with actual humans uh, on a chip in the loop from the very beginning. I hadn't thought about that, that, but that is a huge benefit, of course, to um, not just the speed and cost of, of animal trials, but if you manage to get actual human organs that respond in, in the correct way to, to drugs and all in one place, then the need for animal models will presumably uh, fall, fall to the ground. I think everybody would lo love to see the end of animal modeling, the necessary evil that it is. You're also doing something very interesting um, with trying to find correlations in a huge amount of, of data out there to try and see, are there some unusual relationships we're not familiar with yet between a protein or some sort of biomarker and aging? And, and, and I want you to explain, what are you doing and why are you doing it there? So we're working on developing a challenge. Again, this is an open innovation challenge to create an open platform uh, for biomarker reference ranges um, but also with the input for a lot of wild data. So what we want to do is we want to create a first a database of every known biomarker. Um, and then we want to set that up so that it's an open platform where any individual or healthcare system, whatever, who has data can throw that wild data at that system so that the reference ranges, which is basically a way of representing the biological age, statistical biological age with reference or with regard to a biomarker. Uh, we want to set it up so that you have that system, all the biomarkers are there, and anybody can throw wild data at it and see, okay, what's, what is my biological age with regard to this? 
The most important thing though about it is that it's an open platform. Literally anybody would be able to build on top of it, whether it's a fitness app type company or it's a large healthcare system or somebody who's doing drug discovery. And it would, it would essentially serve as a litmus test for whatever interventions they might be doing or whatever interventions you would be doing as an individual. So, so what you're doing is you're, you're, you're hoping to create a platform where everyone can throw in their data and you're hoping that maybe some, some interesting correlations might point out that you need a, a particular protein might be really strongly correlated with aging quickly and that you might then identify a protein that you can then create a, a, a medical intervention for. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. So you could have a, a certain biomarker, which might very obviously correlate to chronological age or biological age, right? It might not be, though, the thing that's far enough upstream for you to actually create an intervention for. So what you want to do is you want to have as much data as you can possibly can so you can see how different biomarkers correlate to each other so that you can tease out where the most effective intervention point might be. It might be something incredibly subtle that no one would ever think of, but if you have enough data, you can start to see those correlations. Right, I see. So, so you might um, identify some some relationship that you hadn't known about before, um, that might have, might have have an effect on three or four different um, mechanisms that break down when we age. Yeah, exactly. And it could be that that biomarker has that that upstream biomarker has literally basically nothing to do, obviously, with somebody's biological age. You would never see it until you could see how it was correlated to the things that are obviously affecting biological age. And, and you know, those sort of discoveries do happen. The Epstein-Barr virus uh, story that I, I went on and on about, um, I think it was last year, that, that showed that if you have the Epstein-Barr virus, you can have MS, but if you don't have Epstein-Barr, you will not get MS. And that sort of a correlation, while it had been theorized, was proven. And that sort of thing is the sort of stuff we're looking for, because that is the that is the field of dreams when it comes to identifying areas for for therapies and areas for prevention. So really, really exciting work. Dane Goebel from the Methuselah Foundation. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. That was very interesting, wasn't it? Um, what did you make of that? Aidan McKelvey, producer of the program, joins me to go through some of your comments from last week. I think that idea of humans on a ship is mad. I think it's brilliant. It's mad and it's great as well because anytime we have like uh, an advance that's made in medicine and you have that story come true to you and you're like, oh, that's great. And at the back of your mind, you know, it's great, but this thing had to happen to, in order to get there. It'd be beautiful for all of us if we could just remove that stain. The animals. Yeah, the animals. Like... 130,000 in 2020, 2020 in Ireland, 130,000 animals were tested on for the first time. And look, I'll give you a bit of insight into this. Number one, those animals do not go to a mouse sanctuary. That does not happen, right? These animals are destroyed. Most of them are destroyed after the research, right? So these animals um, are used just to try something out and they die. Sadly, it's not as if they're, most of them are even testing new drugs. They're just being explored for how things work. And that's just a fact of it. The other fact is, despite your best ethical guidelines, the truth of the matter is some of these animals, unfortunately, will be in unnecessary pain. That's just a fact. Um, and I've had animal researchers who have said, I'm sorry, look, I, you know, we did our best, but it happens. And also you become immune to it. You do, like, which is, which is a, a natural thing. Uh, but also horrific when you think about it. And to end animal testing forever would be phenomenal. In fact, it surprises me that we haven't tried to do this more comprehensively, more quickly. 
Like, yeah. How have we not tried to figure this out quicker? Yeah, well, I guess, see, I think maybe some people, you know, meat eaters like myself, I don't eat a lot of meat, but I do eat some meat. So nobody is kind of moral. Well, most what are you of, doing? What are you about to do? What, what line are you about to draw between meat eaters and people who like experiment on animals? I was going to say that you like, are, what are you about to do? <laughs> well, Would you like, let me speak? I've, I've lost my train of thought there. Um, no, but I mean, I think maybe we allow this to happen because we equate it with meeting and well, we're eating them anyway. But I don't think it's you eat mice. No, but I mean, uh, why is it why is a mice any less valuable than a? Than no, a cow? no, it's true. Uh, the philosopher will always come out. You can take the man out of philosophy. Yeah. No, I, I think. Um, and I, I think, well, there is like the thing as well is like there is undoubted good being done about no it. No question. And I think, and I think, but I not every want, research, not every piece, not of research. every piece yeah. of research. I, I don't want to speak for for all humans. I often try to, but I don't want to speak for all humans. But I think a lot of people, deep down, they they will, you know, they'll put the life of human beings ahead of a, the life of an animal. That's just the fact yeah, of it. But the the take out your philosophical weighing scales for a second and how many animals is a human life worth that you know that question becomes ridiculous but absurd but also surely we should have a number at some point right is is one human life worth every lynx on the planet how many lynxes seven like it becomes ridiculous but actually lynx what an obscure choice well, I, just, I, just, I just picked a random animal I didn't want to go for you know you kill your darlings in the, in the creative process right I'm not going to go mice I'm going to go lynx but the, the question is you know what, uh, we, are, we, we are more human life is more important than an animal but how many animals yeah and it becomes tricky it's a tricky thing it is very tricky I don't want don't to make light of it I, I, I think it's awful I do think it's necessary but I, I, I probably if you looked if you had if you had a clear, objective view of all the research that was done, you could probably say five, five-sixths of it. I don't know why I picked that. That's a very strange. I don't know what's wrong with me today. <laughs> like three five, quarters of it. Five out of three every quarters of it, you could say that, that, get, that, that, that pain or that death of that animal taught us nothing. Nothing at all. Yeah. I'd say three quarters of all research taught us nothing at all. So here's hoping, here's hoping for success for Dane. Yeah. I, I would, yeah, exactly. Like, I'd love it. I'd love no, for him to be time. successful in this. And, and uh, I'm sure people are, are are not happy with me saying that. I think I'd, I'd love to know. I know that there's a lot of ethical research um, proposal. I do know that there are uh, ethical forms. You have to you have to validate your reasoning why this is important and why this is useful, but. We all know most medical research doesn't end up where it should be. And and so we all know that even just exploring how something works, you might make a breakthrough, you might not. So so a huge amount of animals are wasted, but it is very difficult to know which animals are going to lead to a cure for leukemia and which animals were just a waste. And uh, yeah, look, the reason why we don't talk about this a lot on the program is because it's no, it's 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 a problem that isn't easily solved, and there's a horrible, unpleasant truth right at the centre of it. Right, um, let's move on to our texts and tweets. <laughs> uh, we were talking about um, babies smiling in 4D in the news round. Uh, uh, what we learned is that if you feed a baby carrots in the womb, he will smile or she will smile. If you um, give a baby uh, kale in the womb, they will make a grimace. 
and someone says, baby smiling, and we've no problem with abortion. Oh, man. I, I thought I'd easily go from <laughs> I knew animals. what was coming here. Yeah, yeah I could <laughs> see why you were smiling. Like, and while we're talking about uh, moral quandaries. <laughs> okay, so, so can I just address this ridiculous question, please? I know it's nothing to do with science. Everyone has a problem with abortion. That's not the flipping point. It was never the point. It's just such a ridiculous... Everyone has a problem with abortion. Nobody thinks it's a good idea. Nobody wants someone to have an abortion. That's not the point. The argument is, what is the alternative for a lot of these women? That's the point. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. No. Jesus Christ. Everybody, nobody wants to have an abortion. No girl wants to have an abortion. No one wants their wife or daughter or child, sister, cousin to have an abortion. That's not the flipping point. The point is, what is the alternative? Will that person do something else? What sort of healthcare does that person have? What other options are there? Are there, And what sort of life will they have if they continue to have that child? And whether or not it's that person's decision to choose that future. On thorium reactors, um, Stephen said, there are no known commercial... So we were talking about thorium reactors in the program, uh, which is a new type of uh, reactor, which I thought someone... You know, we had a guest on and I thought um, we were going to hear that... Thorium reactors are amazing and they've got, you know, they, they're the future and they're so much better and so much cleaner and so much more efficient. And it turns out that thorium reactors don't seem to be hugely better than what we have. No, seems like high temperature gas reactors are the way to go, apparently. Anyway, they're being researched in China and Stephen says there are no known commercial thorium plants in existence. All established design nuclear plants under construction are over budget. Long-term waste, aging atom workforce, water demand in summer droughts, raw material state ownership. He keeps on asking these questions, but I don't have any answers. I have no answers for you, Stephen. I also don't know what those questions are. Um, but I think he's basically saying Thorium's just not, not a runner. I think... Which seems kind, yeah, of, yeah. kind of fair. You could have just said that. Yeah. Um, uh, and finally, uh, we did make the mistake of inviting you to ask your questions on the programme and then one of you uh, asked a very specific question. Uh, it was Peter Crowley. Uh, and Peter uh, had a problem with uh, Stephen Ostad's research uh, where he says, uh, Stephen's comments on protein stability in long-lived animals such as the bivalve Arctica islandica caught my attention, in particular the su- suggestion that this animal can prevent amyloid formation. However, having checked his publications, I find only two papers on protein stability in Arctica Islandica. Neither of these proves that bivalves contain a chaperone or other molecule that enhances protein stability. And needless to say, neither paper provides evidence for the prevention of amyloids. Um, would you mind asking Stephen about it? So it's great that we have two like people in very niche interests um, uh, communicating via this podcast is non-specialist, non-expert podcast. Here we go. Stephen came back. He says, sure, happy to answer this question. Our observations that Arctic muscle cell lysate prevents human amyloid is unpublished. I've been talking about it so long in public presentations, I often forget what we've published and what we haven't. In this case, we saw no reason to publish the human amyloid data until we could explain it. So far, we can't. We know it's not a molecular chaperone. I don't believe that I ever claimed it was because our protein stri- stability assay does not include ATP which is necessary for chaperone activity there's only one person listening to this now there's only even even if even if we're lucky you're happy with this I've got I've got it all you want me to makes perfect sense to me I don't know what you're talking about you want me to continue yes go on he's like we're bound by this promise we made to the audience right fine I hope you I hope you're listening Peter 
He says, our best, he says, it's not a glycation, at least for stability of other clam proteins, as we showed in that 2015 paper. Our best hypothesis, and it's only a hypothesis, is that so-called small heat shock proteins, HSPs to you and me, which do not require ATB for their chaperone activity may be involved. The PhD student who worked on that project, Stephen Treister, is now at Harvard Medical School and is working on the Artiga genome. Particularly, we're interested in whether Artiga has an exceptional abundance of this type of SHSPs. He may have a more recent update on what he's finding. Hope this answers Peter's question. I mean, we could have just given Peter that email, but I thought it would be important to to honor our promise yeah. to answer all emails. So we there want you go. our listeners to know. You know what? They Why don't we just send each whatever question, whatever they question want. you want, we will answer it on the program. Uh, Peter, we could also just send you Stephen's email if you want to chase that up. Uh, thank you very much for your question, Peter, and uh, very much appreciate it. Um, well, um, now that that's sorted, <laughs> this has been a real mixed bag. This. Uh, listeners' questions section, hasn't it? Um, thanks to Aidan McKelvey. Um, thanks also to Anna Verglachik and Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.